Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Jane Smiley, whose latest novel is Perestroika in Paris. Earlier novels include The Last Hundred Years Trilogy, A Thousand Acres, which won the Pulitzer Prize and became a film. Overall, there are 16 adult novels. There are eight young adult novels, two collections of short stories, five books of nonfiction, including 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel. Perestroika in Paris is not quite a young adult novel, yet it contains animals that talk to each other. It's about a horse named Perestroika, so it's not about Perestroika uh, in history, who escapes from a racetrack and lives in Paris for a while near the Eiffel Tower. So let's go back. I understand that the origins of this novel took place back in 2009. I was in Paris visiting. I can't even remember why, actually, but I had gone to Maison Lafitte to get acquainted with a woman that I'd met through uh, the racing column in the New York Times, who's an American woman, actually from Wisconsin, who was was training racehorses in France. And I thought she was interesting. And it turned out she was way more interesting than even I thought then. But at any rate, I had Paris, my filly, who, let's see, in 2009, she was about four. We were there, and then we went back into Paris, and we decided to go to a restaurant in the Place du Trocadero, which is on the west side of the Seine, up a steep hill. Beautiful, beautiful area. And we had this wonderful French onion soup. And I said to my husband, you know, wouldn't it be funny if a horse escaped from Maison Lafitte and came into Paris and lived for a while. And then we laughed and said, what a ridiculous idea. But I sort of couldn't get it out of my mind. And I love that side of Paris because there's the Champ de Mar. There's some very interesting old houses. There's some great places to buy food. There's a great view of Paris because you're up on a hill. And so I just couldn't stop myself and on we went. That was 2009, though. At the time, you were still working on the trilogy, right? Oh, yeah. I was working hard on the trilogy. I'd planned it. I knew what I was going to do with it. But I always take a break. I always work on a book and then put it away for a pretty long time. So I would work on the, the books of the trilogy for about five months. And then I would set them aside for, say, four months. And I had to do something for those four months, so I would play around with other material, and this was one of the books that I played around with. When you say play around, does that just mean, um, I know you tell your students, just start writing and don't worry about what it is. Is that what you were kind of doing? Yeah. I mean, I had a plan for the trilogy. I didn't particularly have a plan for this book, 
but I knew what things would be fun and what things would be practical and what things would be maybe characteristic of that part of Paris. And so that's what I mean by playing around, trying to figure out what might happen and see where the narrative would lead me. At that point, were the animals talking to each other? Oh, yeah. They talked to each other from the beginning. From the time that Paris meets Frida, they start talking to one another. Paris, P-A-R-A-S, is short for Perestroika. Was your horse actually named Perestroika too? Yep, and she still is. She is my horse. Her sire is Moscow Ballet, and his sire is Nijinsky, I think. So there's this long line of racehorses, um, that line, that she's related to. So that's how she got named Perestroika. So you just took the same name and more or less the same horse, and you kind of did the same thing with your dog then, Frida, Mm -hmm. who's a German short-haired pointer, correct? Yes. Let me put it this way. They're both interesting. The Paris in the book is quite similar to the Paris in my life, but the Paris in my life did not win any horse races. She kind of had no success at the track, but she was really great when she came home and became a riding horse. And when I say great, I'm not saying that she was fabulous and obedient. I'm saying that she was very much herself. She was very opinionated. She was very curious. She was fun to be with. She was intelligent. She learned voice commands. She's been an interesting horse since day one. Frida, the dog, was actually a rescue. I was at the Pebble Beach Horse Show, and this woman walked past, this woman that we knew walked past, and she was leading this incredibly beautiful dog. And we commented on how beautiful she was, and the woman said that her owner wanted to get rid of her because he had been away and she had wrecked something. I can't remember if it was the furniture or something, but she'd done a bad deed. So I said, well, I'll take her. And I brought her home, and my husband was not happy at having another dog. But then a friend of ours that I called on the way, who had German short hairs, came driving up the driveway and jumped out of her car and said, oh, what a beautiful dog. So he was convinced, outnumbered, let's put it that way. She did turn out to be a wonderful dog. She was extremely obedient. She loved to go to the beach. She was good, really good with the other dogs. And one of the best things she did... I sometimes, what's the word, strum my banjo, and she would howl along with the banjo. (laughs) There's a sequence in Perestroika in Paris in which Frida, the fictional dog, has the ability to keep a bag, a purse, with money in it, and bring it with her around to different places, and people assume that the dog is smart enough to be able to buy and sell things on some level. Has that ever happened? No, but Frida did love to carry things. She also loved to claim things. So in my view, it was sort of plausible that a dog of her size, which is about 75 pounds and nice and strong, would be able to carry a purse. And because of how she has lived before she meets Paris. She does know what money is. 
so I, I felt it was plausible that she would understand a few things about, uh, let's say, the, the monetary life that people and animals have to live in Paris. When you were working on this book, obviously you're anthropomorphizing animals. Did you even consider that as an issue or did you just say, to hell with it, I'm Jane Smiley, I can do what I want? <laughs> Well, no, I didn't say that, but I did say to myself, yeah, all the animals I know have feelings, they have opinions, they have a willingness to explore, they learn things. I don't think it's exactly anthropomorphizing them. I think it's more like giving them a voice. It's a voice that animals should have. I mean, when I was growing up, People considered animals kind of stupid and you had to use the whip or you had to use the carrot, you know, but you didn't pay any attention to their individuality or what might appear to be their feelings. But those days are gone. And now when we are with animals, whether they're horses or dogs or any other kind of animal, cats, we do enjoy and also pay attention to their idiosyncrasies. We do try to interpret what they're thinking or what they're feeling because it helps us get along with them. And that's especially true of horses because if you're going to ride a horse, especially a thoroughbred, say, or an energetic warm blood, you really have to be aware of what's going through their minds because you don't want to be shied off or anything like that. So you have to pay attention. And as soon as you start paying attention, you notice that this horse is different from this other horse. And you have to shape your ideas about one horse differently than you shape your ideas about another horse. And every trainer knows that. And most riders know that too. So it's only one step from there to giving them a voice. As I said before we went on the air, I got a dog. My previous dog was so off the rails that <laughs> I don't even want to consider what those 15 years were like. It's kind of like after that, I said, I'm never getting another dog. Ah. I'm going to retire undefeated. But what I've learned with Ringo is the more you pay attention to the dog, the more you can see what the dog likes, doesn't like, or has an opinion. And sometimes I feel guilty because I'm like, I don't want to do what the dog wants me to do. <laughs> that makes sense. I've had a lot of dogs over the years, and all of them have done some very weird and mysterious things. And I just have to give them some kind of respect for their intelligence. I mean, one of my favorite things, we, we did have this great Dane and I came into the kitchen and on the rug in the kitchen, there was a can that I knew had been taken from behind, behind the sink. And it had been a can of oil and he had managed to get the can, lick up all the oil and not spill a drop. And I never figured out how he did that. And then one time I talked to the animal communicator because I had a Jack Russell and this same dog. And I noticed that a, a box of crackers was lying on the rug and the crackers had all been eaten. And I said to the animal communicator, because I was on the phone with her, I said, man, I don't know how they got those crackers down. And she paused and then she said, well, 
Sterling says Casey did it. Casey was the Jack Russell. But I said, but she couldn't have done it. That's the second shelf of the upper cabinet. And his claw marks are on the shelf paper. And then there was a pause. And then the animal communicator said, well, Sterling says it was Casey's idea. <laughs> you know, I have no idea if they were telling the truth, but I do know that he got the can of oil off the windowsill behind the sink, and he also got a box of crackers down from the second shelf on the upper cabinets. So you tell me how he did that. I have no idea. With Ringo. And I don't know if this is because he's still afraid that since he was abandoned once, he'll be abandoned again. But he doesn't do sneaky things. I once dog sat for a dog who found chocolate Hanukkah gelt that <laughs> I didn't even know I had. We took the dog to the vet. Dog was fine. Next day, the dog had found another one, I guess a little bag of them. And huh? I had no idea where it was or how <laughs> Hector had found it. And chocolate is not good for dogs. No kidding, no like kidding. It. They seem to like it. <laughs> anyway, we, we should probably um, get back into more of a standard interview here. When you're working on a novel, uh, a fantasy about talking animals that's set in the real world, how much do you pay attention to what they actually do? And is the process of writing a novel like Perestroika in Paris similar to the process of writing your other books? Yes. I mean, with all books, you have to make it up and it has to be plausible. And you have to understand the environment they're living in and you have to understand what they're likely to do and you have to understand what their idiosyncrasies are so that they can do something that's maybe unlikely. In my experience, the best thing to do, no matter what novel you're working on, is to check out the setting as closely as possible, because then you learn a lot about the circumstances of whoever it is that you're talking about, whether it's an animal or a person. For example, in A Thousand Acres, or I got the idea of how to start it when I was driving from Minneapolis to Ames, Iowa. And you come down through a part of northern Iowa that's very flat. And it was once a marsh. And then it was drained by farmers from Norfolk, England, who were used to marshy land. And so that particular landscape was different in terms of farming than other parts of Iowa were. And that gave me some ideas about how really fertile the soil was, but how also when pesticides came into fashion or came into use, it became dangerous because the pesticides were going down through the drainage wells and into the the water underneath. And so that sparked my thoughts about, okay, where am I going to set this King Lear on the farm novel? And so that's happened all the time with me, that I'll get a beginning of an idea, but then I'll go to the place where I would set it, and I'll get 
a much more clear idea. And then that'll give me ideas about the plot and about the characters and about how it would possibly work out. Were you able to get into the meat of the writing of Perestroika in Paris before the pandemic? Oh, yeah. It was basically finished before the pandemic. I had a rough draft, and I'd gone over it a number of times. And then it wasn't the pandemic that got me interested in publishing it. It was about a year and a half ago. I said to my editor, you know... And she had read the rough draft. And and I said, maybe we should publish that Paris and Paris book as kind of a distraction from all the political issues. And she said, well, that's a good idea. That would have been 2019, the summer of 2019. So then we started working on bringing it kind of up to the way we wanted it. But we didn't have any idea that the pandemic was going to happen. But we, we certainly knew that there were political issues that people would like to be distracted from. Well, that's what I noticed in the book. As I started reading the book, I don't remember if I began it before or after January 6th. For me, at least, it was the equivalent of just entering a world I'd much rather be in than the one that I'm in. <laughs> Well, I think that's true for a lot of people, including me. I mean, when it came out, I listened to the audiobook version because I love audiobooks and I wanted to see, when I started out, I wanted to see how the narrator was doing. But then it drew me in again because it's a distraction. That's what I like about it. And I think it's been very important for me, along with you know, taking me to another place. It was also good because I can't go to back to Paris. And yeah. now I'm thinking it w- it was not necessarily on my list. I've been to Paris a couple of times. I love mm-hmm. Paris. If somebody said, let's go to Paris and I had the opportunity, I'd go, but it's not on top of my list. It's moved up because I just want to walk oh. around the area with the book. Well, it's a beautiful area, and a couple of things are my favorite things about the west side of Paris. One of them is the Honoré Balzac Museum, which if you're a writer and you go there, and it's got so many displays, and they're in such detail, and you look around at what Balzac's life as a writer was, and you think, oh, wow, I will never complain again. It's a totally interesting museum. And then obviously there's that French onion soup in the, in the Place de Trocadero. But there's also a street that's lovely to walk down called the Boulevard Emile Zola, or the Avenue Emile Zola, I guess. So that's a totally interesting side of Paris that a lot of people don't visit because the, the other parts are more famous. So it's a good place to go. When you were working on Perestroika in Paris... Were you deliberately setting it in 2008 because you didn't want to deal with it with any political issues? Or were you setting it there simply because you thought up the idea around that time? That's when I thought up the idea. And also the uh, landscape around the Eiffel Tower has changed a good deal since then. So I didn't know if I could fit the things that I wanted to happen into the current landscape around the Eiffel Tower. When I was there in 2008, it was a little run down and and a little old style. 
uh, the ponds with the ducks and the bridge and the, and the weeds and the brush. And so I used those things and I didn't want to change those. So I maintained the setting as 2008. The um, home of Etienne and his grandmother, mm-hmm. is that a real house? It's a house that I've seen. It seems to have changed also. I clearly remember the tall fence and the incredibly tight brush that was hanging from the fence or, you know, blocking blocking any sight in sight in there. And I remember the top of the house and I remember where it was. But I never got to go inside it or anything like that. I just got to kind of peek through the bushes and get a look at it. And then you said, that's the place. That's the mysterious place, yes. Before we move on to other elements in your career, one other question. The the plot of the story, was that there in that initial scribblings way back when? Or did that emerge over time? That emerged over time. I mean, I knew that I wanted there to be a young boy or I thought maybe a boy or a girl, but he turned out to be a boy who would be interested in the horse because essentially that's me at eight years old. When I was a kid, the thing I wanted more than anything was for a, for a horse to show up in the backyard and for the horse to be able to come and live in my house with me. And I'm sorry to say that that never happened, but I figured, well, you know, why not? Let Etienne have his way. Does that mean that on some level you're mining the depths of your own wants over the periods of your life and going, hey, I could I could create <laughs> that reality on paper? Well, of course. And I think that's true with a lot of books, you know, with a lot of authors and a lot of books. They explore not only sometimes what actually happened to them, but you know, other alternatives, what might have happened, what almost happened, those sorts of things. Had that element sort of been in the back of your mind even before you came up with the idea of the book? Or did it just arise? No, that wasn't in my mind before I came up with the book. It just sort of uh, came from the book as the book developed. You're bringing up memories that you didn't even know you had in the course of well, writing I knew a novel. I had them, but I didn't plan to use them. I just ended up using them. Let's put it that way. Jane Smiley, I want to talk about a few other things here. You began your career as a lit major and was interested in Old English and Old Norse. Have you ever used any of those interests in any of your books? Yeah, probably the most important one is the Greenlanders. I adored the Icelandic sagas. When I was in college, I took Old English and Middle English, and then I went to graduate school at the University of Iowa, and I took Old Norse for, I think it was two and a half years. We weren't learning to speak it because it doesn't exist anymore, but we were learning to read the sagas. Then I went to Iceland where I did more studying of Old Norse, and I could not get the sagas out of my mind. Now, because of my education, both in college and graduate school, 
I was totally fascinated by the history of the English language. That propelled me into Old Norse. But once I got into Old Norse, I was fascinated by Icelandic literature. And it, it was partly because it was alien, but it was partly because it was familiar, because it was in prose. And the saga writers were really trying to sort through political issues that were essential to the continued existence of Iceland. And one of them was feuding. They had to figure out a way to get the law system to deal with the temptation that various groups had of feuding with each other. So essentially they were settling, trying to get the Icelanders of the Middle Ages to control themselves. And then I learned about Greenland, and I read the sagas of the Greenlanders. There's t there were two of them. And they were about the founding of the community, the Norse community in Greenland. But I was fascinated by whatever happened to the Greenlanders. So I decided early on that I was going to write a book about that. And I, but I knew I had to practice with other books and, and learn to do it because it was going to be a complicated subject. So that's basically how I got going through language and then fascination with different kinds of literature. Did you go up to Greenland and Iceland and check out the scene like you were saying before? I spent about 10 months in Iceland on a Fulbright scholarship. Then when the time came that I was working on the Greenlanders, in the summer of 84, I did go to Greenland, and I was there for about 10 days, and it was totally interesting, very beautiful and strange, not at all like Iceland. It was much different from Iceland. When I think of Greenland, Iceland's a little less because I know people who've gone there. When I think of Greenland, I'm also thinking of, you know, those places like Tasmania, which are kind of at the end of the world where there's nothing on the other side of where they are, which must be a very unusual feeling. It is and it isn't. You know, I was back in Iceland about two years ago, and I have an old friend that I knew when I was first in Iceland, and he's gone to back and forth to Greenland a number of times. So it's become a more common place to travel. It's, too, it's become a more connected place to the rest of the world. It's not exactly as alien or different or far away as it used to be, but it definitely felt when I went there the first time, like here I was being an explorer. You know, you get on the plane to go somewhere very strange, and almost always the first person you meet is someone who's been to Antarctica. You know, <laughs> whenever, you think you're, whenever you think you're doing something really, really adventurous, you meet this person who's been somewhere that you never even thought of going to. Jane Smiley, there was the film of Thousand Acres, and then there was The Secret Lives of Dentists. I understand your agent said Perestroika in Paris could not become a movie because there's no villain. But when I'm reading it, that's from the LA Times. But when I'm reading it, I'm thinking, you know, Miyazaki didn't always have a villain either. <laughs> well, yeah. Call everybody you know in Hollywood and say, come on, you guys. It's not a villain. But I think the bad guy in Perestroika in Paris is life itself. I mean, one of the characters is almost 100 years old. One of the characters is a 
eight-year-old boy who's essentially on his own. One of the characters is an escaped horse. What's she going to eat? One of the characters is a dog that's lost her owner. So all of them are dealing with the typical and usual aspects of, of life on Earth. So I don't think you need a bad guy. The question isn't friend or foe, it's friend or food. Yeah. But these people, uh, uh, but the animals especially, but to some sense, in some sense, Etienne and his great-grandmother, the basics are what they need. And so I had to be practical in my sense of, okay, how are these people and animals going to be fed? Frida, the stray dog, she can go look in the trash cans. And you know in Paris there's going to be plenty of good stuff in the trash cans. But Paris, the dog, well, she can eat grass, but it's November. So the practical considerations led me to, of course, walk around the Champ de Mar and the local neighborhoods and contemplate what might work for Paris in this kind of neighborhood. Jane Smiley, the pandemic and before that, the Trump years, what influence did those four years have in terms of your writing. One of the problems is how do you take the angst and find a creative way to deal with it? One of the ways, obviously, is to distract myself from it. I did talk about, I mean, the Last Hundred Years trilogy was published in 2015, but it went all the way up to 2020. And I did attempt to talk about what bad things could happen after 2015. But clearly, I didn't have any idea. Clearly, I was too much of an optimist to say what really bad things could happen. I think we were all kind of floored. Many of us, let's put it that way, were and are kind of floored by what has happened. And the best way to deal with it is just to try and ease our way out of this into a society that's more more friendly and less dangerous. But uh, don't come to me for advice because I have no idea. I'm just doing the best I can like everybody else. You can't predict events like Trump or 9-11 for that matter. No. They change society in their own ways. As it turned out, Trump probably has changed things in even worse ways than 9-11 ever could. It does seem like that, doesn't it? But then along came the pandemic and isolation. For you, Jane Smiley, what did that mean? And did that help you in your writing? Did it hurt you? Did you do a lot of Zoom classes in creative writing? Yes, we've. I've been Zooming. So, this, so the spring term last year was all Zoom. And then my winter and spring terms this year are all Zoom. I actually don't think my students mind it that much. I give them more writing assignments. They're short, but they have to turn them in every week. And that way they get, at least they get practice in dealing with grammar and writing and all of those things. I give them interesting books to read and I just hope that it works. As for my writing... Well, as for my life, my life isn't all that different. We don't get to visit our friends and we don't get to travel, but we do get to our local 
grocery store is always follows the rules. The people in our neighborhood always follow the rules. And we can go to the horses because we can't leave them on their own. And so we do that. Sometimes I get a little restless, but it's not that different from my previous country life. Do you think after we come back to whatever is on the other side of masks, that people will want to think and live in fiction during this era? Because I can't see myself wanting to. It it feels to me like I just want to take 2016 through 2022 and put it aside, <laughs> if that makes sense. I don't want to relive this in fiction. I don't. I understand that. and I haven't come up with any ideas or thoughts about books that I would write about this. But I will say that after 9-11, when I was pondering 10 Days in the Hills, I was reading Boccaccio and thinking about the Black Death. And I found it helpful to read Boccaccio and think about the Black Death and to think about how the people got through it in the Decameron and what they thought about and what they cared about. And so, you know, for those of us who have lived through it, maybe we don't need to pay any more attention to it ever again. But for for people in the future, maybe they will find something of use in what writers of our time think about it. And maybe that'll help them in the future. Well, it certainly, hopefully, will help people who might have a tendency toward Trumpism to understand why Trumpism is not the, the way to go. Well, I hope so. I hope so. But then again, you know, generations, 30 years ago, Trumpism probably couldn't have happened because people still had the memory of Hitler. That makes perfect sense. You know, there's a book called American Nations by Colin Woodard that I constantly recommend. And it's about how fragmented this country has always been because of where the various groups happen to come from. And he talks about the Native Americans, he talks about African Americans, but he also talks about where people came from in Europe and where they settled and how their own traditions back in Europe influenced how they behaved in America. There's a couple of books about that. And, you know, you read those books and you hope that people can get out of the habits that they have. There's another book about this, too. I can't quite remember the name of it right now. But one of the most interesting parts was talking about people from the Scots-English borders, border area, and how because of the wars back and forth across the, the Scottish-English border, these people were very rough and ready and violent. And so when they came to the U.S., in the 17th century and in the early 18th century, they ended up going through Pennsylvania and ended up in the Appalachians. And their culture was much different, say, than the culture of Massachusetts or the culture of the um, German Americans who came to the Middle West. And I think that sort of analysis of the history of American culture is helpful in trying to understand 
why some people are so rigid in their views and their acceptance of violence, and some people aren't. As a fiction writer, if you're thinking of, say, if you were going to write a novel, and the novel encompassed the actual events of the past year from January 20th to January 20th, how do you think a novel like that would be received if it didn't happen? I have no idea. I can't even begin to imagine that. If it hadn't happened, I have no idea. I'm much more interested in things that really did happen, but I think that you need to get sort of far away from them so you can look back on them in a more reasonable way and so that other things that nobody knew about can emerge and come out so that you can put together things logically. I don't really have an answer to your question. You know, when you're living through it, you you kind of go, is this a Tom Wolfe novel? Is this a <laughs> Philip K. Dick novel? It's not a Jane Smiley novel, I don't think. No. It takes a certain mind to invent a Donald Trump. I should have invented that for the last 100 years trilogy, and I wasn't up to it. So you just do the best you can. A novel has to be logical, and real life isn't logical ever. It just just sort of happens, and and then you figure out what happened later. Jane Smiley, Perestroika in Paris, was written while other books were being written. Uh, are you writing a couple other novels now, nonfiction, anything? One of the periods that I've been very fascinated by is the 1850s. So I turned in a murder mystery set in Monterey in the 1850s when Monterey was was a really interesting spot in California. I turned that one in. It still needs some work, but it was a lot of fun. I did a lot of walking around Monterey to try and... Fortunately, Monterey is very, very well preserved. And so you can see a lot of stuff that was built in the 1840s and 50s. When you're working on a mystery like that, is the process any different because you kind of need to know who done it? Or how it got done? Well, you're just going to have to figure that out when the time comes. You've been listening to an interview with Jane Smiley, whose latest novel is Perestroika in Paris. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.